Turn to Micah chapter 5. Uh, Micah 5, 5 and 6 is the, vast, is the passage that we will consider this afternoon. Uh, Micah 5. Now master your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, a father, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore I shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to, to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the, min in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and trends in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and trends within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of all, in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers in the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, when, which, when it goes through, Trends down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land, and draw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your, uh, from your hand, and you shall... Have no more tellers of fortunes, and I'll cut off your curved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I'll root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities, and, and in anger and wrath I will execute visions on the nations that did not obey. Let us pray. Uh, our Heavenly Father, again, we look to you to help us understand these two verses. May your spirit be poured abundantly upon each one of us so that uh, not only will we hear, but also we will understand and learn uh, with a view of being changed by your word. Please bless us, Lord. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, is there any of you who has not had any enemy? You have no enemies, you've never had any enemies in your life. Show us by your hand. I'm sure none. Uh, we all are confronted by various enemies in our lives at different times. 
And uh, you will know that there are enemies of our souls, uh, which is described as uh, evil trinity, because it's composed of the devil, the world, and the flesh. And uh, these enemies of our souls are ever up in arms against us. And the Lord does recognize this. And so he has designed uh, his armor for us. What is called the God's full armor in Ephesians 6, 10 and following. And if you look at the armor of God that we have, which includes the helmet of righteousness, the breastplate of, uh, excuse me, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the readiness of the gospel on our feet, and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the shield of faith as well as the sword of the Spirit. And then prayer is the other thing, praying at all times for all the saints with all prayer and supplication. I mean, you look at that, the fact that God has an armor prepared for us, it assumes that there would be enemies to be fought, enemies to be defended against, enemies to fight against. But you see, more often than not, we live our Christian lives as if there are no enemies to be conquered. We are just there, not alert to the schemes and the wells of the evil one. And that's why then we struggle with reading our Bibles every day. We struggle with prayer. We, we are acting as if we are oblivious to the fact that we are in a battleground and uh, just sipping our cup of coffee in the battlefield, not even knowing where, where the sword is, where our, our weapons are. That does describe too many Christians, sadly. So it's not surprising that we have constant, uh, you know, we constantly have Christians being wounded in the battle. But it's not surprising because people, generally, Christians, act as if the devil is not roaming around like a lion looking for someone to devour. We act as if we are in a shopping mall when we are really in the wilderness or in the battlefield, to be precise. And what do you think is the purpose of all these enemies that we have? What is, what is their motive? What is their intent? What is the intent of the enemies of God's elect? At the very best is to make them suffer. And thankfully, that's all they manage to do with God's elect. They make you suffer. But their primary intent is to bring you down. It is to completely extinguish the life of the Spirit from your soul. That's the intent. 
of the enemies of your soul. They want to extinguish that light of the gospel from you. And so you see, uh, your body, the flesh, is one of the enemies. Uh, they find Sunday afternoon too much. And so half of us have already left to go to attend to other things. And I can, you know, point out those kind of illustrations to just show how oblivious we are to the enemies of our souls. And that can be uh, shown to be the case even during the week. How many times do you, do you intentionally wake up in the morning, you pray and you read your Bible with a view of retaining that close, affectionate communion with God? Many times it just looks like a duty and we don't see it as our way of building our communion with God. But then, brethren, these need to change. These need to change because, as I pointed earlier today, God's people suffer because we, we already saw from Romans 8.16 that the Spirit bears witness with our own spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. And this afternoon then we are reminded of our enemies whose primary intent is to bring suffering upon God's people. So this message is an introduction to the description of the Messiah to come by Micah. He is vividly described here in a, man, in a manner that is so clear that we, can, we, can, uh, we cannot mistake who is being spoken about when we compare scripture with scripture. Micah has already told us that the Messiah will rule over a united people comprising of both the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, and then he goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 3, that the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand, and this Messiah shall stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And the united people shall dwell securely to the ends of the earth. This is what we yearn and pray for when God's elect people shall be gathered to be one community composed of people from every nation, tribe, and language under God where sin cannot molest and all the enemies of God and of his people have been, have been vanquished. But you see, we are not yet there. And that's why then our pilgrimage means to be a very deliberate pilgrimage. We cannot leave as if we are home. There are enemies to be overcome. There are sufferings to go through. And so then here we have a reality check as we pilgrim through this barren land. Yes, we are weak, but the Lord is mighty. And so we always pray that he may lead us by his powerful hand. Please note two assurances we have in this passage. Two assurances we have 
here. Number one, the Prince of Peace is the victor over all our enemies. And secondly, the shepherd has his under shepherds to care for us. Let's consider each one of them. Uh, we read here a statement that we already considered in the previous sermon, and he shall be their peace. This is a reference to the one who is born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, one who is to be ruler in Israel, and whose coming is from of old, from ancient of days. Verse, verse 2. Verse 5a, which has already been considered, tells us that he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land, which is the next statement, must be taken both in the immediate context and in the wider foretelling context in which we have what we would call prophetic foreshortening. Let me explain that. Whenever the prophets of old were prophesying, they had an idea of what they were dealing with in their minds. In this case, Micah had the Assyrians in his mind. And that's the immediate context. But being scripture, the Lord does use that prophecy to accomplish more than that immediate context. And so when, when, you, when you go to, uh, when you go to uh, Mount Kenya area, you would see various hills and mountains and ridges. When you look, you might be forgiven if you said there is only one mountain. Like, like for instance, uh, where I come from, there, are, there is what is called the Nyambene uh, ridges or hills. If you look at it from, the f from afar, you would think it's just one mountain. But when you go closely or, or you begin going there, you realize, oh, you go up, you go down, you go up again, you go down, there are more than one mountain. It's a, it, it, that's, why it, the, 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 that's why in geography it's called the ridges. Multiple hills all together forming, forming one mountain. Now, prophetic foreshortening is like that. You see one mountain, but really when you go closely, you see there are various ridges to climb over up and down. So Micah here then is thinking about the Assyrians, but the wider context involves all the enemies of God's elect. And this is not allegorizing. This is what we see in most of the uh, prophecies. And that's the way the the New Testament uh, authors understood the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets. And not only so, even the, the Greek translators, the Septuagint, also had this kind of uh, understanding. So let's move on and see that uh, when the Assyrian comes into our land, where Micah blends near and distant angels in his prophecy, and then we are reminded of the immediate context where the, uh, the Bible talks about uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, invaded both Samaria and Jerusalem. Thankfully, to begin with, 
he only managed to subdue Samaria and completely obliterated the northern kingdom. And he must have brought much, much terror. But even for Jerusalem, when he besieged the city, uh, God's people there were terrified. When these Assyrians came and invaded the land, causing much suffering and destruction. But the Assyrians may be here put for any powerful enemy of the people of God in later times. It may as well be Satan. It may as well be his principalities and powers, even all the powers of darkness. We know that God does not shield his people from suffering. God does not shield his people from suffering always. But he lets persecution come sometimes. In fact, he says in his word in Matthew chapter 5 verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is a, is a kingdom of heaven. And before you recover from that, he says again, blessed are you who, who uh, when others revile, and you, revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. Uh, this is the Lord saying that. Can you imagine anyone telling you that blessed are you if you're persecuted for my sake and yet the Lord does just that so God expects his people to be persecuted and has plenty of blessings for his people who suffer that is suffer for righteousness but we know that Christ our peacemaker engaged with all our adversaries at the time, he made peace by his sufferings and death. And the Bible says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We therefore are sure that all the enemies of God's people, here called Assyrians and Nimrod, shall be vanquished. The Bible speaks about the land of Nimrod, and this must be taken to mean Babylon, because Nimrod founded Babylon, or Babel. So Babylon, which should displace Assyria, but should carry on its work of chastising God's people, is enjoyed both by Micah and Isaiah. Remember, later on, when uh, prophet Habakkuk was prophesying. Now he was perplexed. And uh, Brother John took us through this not so long ago. But here is God's prophet. He's looking around. There's lots of wickedness going on in Jerusalem. He's wondering, God is seeing this? God knows what is going on here. And he thought, of course, God sees everything. And then he said, Lord, 
Why do you look idly? He accused God of looking idly. When people continue in wickedness and unrighteousness, why are you doing nothing? And what did God tell him? Wait, what I'm just about to do? No one will believe when I reveal it. And then God went on to say, he will set Babylon. He will set the Chaldeans. And they will deal with his people. And they will eat them like bread, like wheat. And Habakkuk was like, no, Lord, you can't do that. You can't do that. I mean, Babylon, Chaldeans, they are way more wicked than, I mean, we are wicked, but they are way more wicked than we are. You can't bring them over. And God said, oh, yes, that's what I'm going to do. And once I'm done with you, in disciplining you, my people, then I will break the Babylonians, the Babylonian rod into obliteration. And that's what he did. So the people of God were disciplined. They were chastised by the Lord by, the, by using the rod of the Babylonians. But when God had been, you know, done with the, with the Israelites, he went on to completely destroy the Babylonians. So the question then is, uh, the Nimrod in view here then is the Babylonians. And uh, they would be an object of his judgment. So we are told here that it seems like the lad of Babylon is what is called Nimrod because he founded it there in Genesis 10.10. He was the author of the Tower of Babel, which was built in rebellion against God, where his own name was derived. And so Assyria then and the world empire, uh, which should succeed it, stand representing the God-opposed world. Fighting God's people, God's children. And now the question is, what peace is in view here? When we read, and it shall be their peace. And yet goes on to say that the enemies will tread in our palaces, that uh, they will completely destroy. You know, when you tread on in, in our palaces, it means the king is no more. So what peace is in view here? One of the Jewish authors notes that this peace respects the Messiah, for he shall be the cause or the author of peace. As it is said, he shall speak peace unto the heathen in Zechariah 9 verse 10. Another Jewish writer, R. Isaac, writes in the same vein when he said, when you see a Persian horse, this is now the ones who succeeded the Babylonians, the Persians. When you see uh, the means of the Persians, when you see a Persian horse bowed in the land of Israel, look for the feet of the Messiah. So that, so that they saw that as soon as there is greatest opposition against God's people, then the Messiah would be around the corner. And that's exactly what the New Testament says regarding the man of lawlessness. As soon as he is revealed, Christ Jesus will destroy him by the breath of his mouth. 
It means then that the Lord Jesus Christ is the cause of our peace because the Bible says in Ephesians 2.14 that he, shall, he is our peace. Christ is our peace. He's the cause and the author of peace. Not only between Jew and Gentile, but especially between God, Holy God, and sinful man. He has procured this peace by the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. This brought reconciliation with God, and so we read, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in Romans 5.1. So Christ speaks and gives peace to men, and he is the author of peace in his churches, for his kingdom is a kingdom of peace, since he is the prince of peace. And he has set up a kingdom of peace, of which there will be an abundance of peace, and his peace is secured for him and his people, so that he may preserve all of them, from all their enemies, both now and forever. So, when God's children have gone through turmoil and opposition and victimization and even persecution and suffering, you will notice that God's children have always been at peace. Always been at peace. You know, uh, yesterday I was telling, uh, I was speaking, uh, preaching at the wedding and I reminded them of how the Moravians, while traveling to the U.S., and John Wesley was also in the same ship with them. The Moravians, while there was storm brewing and the, the ship was being tossed up and about, they were the most peaceful, praising God and rejoicing in the God of their salvation and thanking Him for having so loved them like that. And John Wesley was listening and wondering, are they okay? Because he himself was a non-believer at the time. Yes, he was a preacher, but he was not saved and didn't have peace of God in his heart. And so while everyone else, the Moravians, were singing praises to God, and I am telling you, if you haven't been storm-tossed, in an ocean, uh, it's not very nice. It's, it's awful. People throw up. So to imagine that anyone would be singing is itself mind-blowing. Because seasickness is very bad. It's worse than, if car sickness is bad, then seasickness is ten times worse. You know? And here are Moravians singing. Now, please don't think that they were, you know, in a very comfortable ship. It's not like the, uh, the cruise ship that we have today, you know. But the point here is when you're in Christ, when you have the Prince of Peace with you, with Christ Jesus in the vessel, I smile at any storm, is what we sing. So Christ speaks and gives peace to his children, his people, because he is the author of peace in our lives. Secondly, the shepherd 
as his under shepherds to care for us. The verse before us speaks of God's people raising seven shepherds who will raise against them, against him, that is against the Assyrian, seven shepherds and eight princes of men who shall shepherd the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod. It speaks of the eight princes of men and goes on to tell us of the one who will deliver us from the Assyrian. Furthermore, when he comes into our land, he shall also tread within our border. Therefore, this is a powerful ruler as a shepherd. He will not be stopped by any force from delivering his people from the trouble of their enemies. This is none other than the only redeemer of God's elect, Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever, Jesus Christ. Let's consider the Messiah's, uh, the Messiah's two roles of being a shepherd and a deliverer. The Bible says they shall shepherd the land. That is the, the shepherds, the seven shepherds. Then we will raise against him, that is against Assyria, seven shepherds. Look at the effect of the seven shepherds raised up by the people, by the power of the Lord. It says, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria. Literally, in Hebrew, it means that they shall waste or feed on and so eat up. The shepherding there is not, is not positive. It is eating up. It is wasting off. It is feeding on. They will consume their enemies. Jeremiah uses the same language, the same image there in Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 3, where he says, Shepherds with their flocks shall come against her. They shall pitch their tents around her. They shall pasture each in its place. And so Joshua and Caleb and said, they, that is the inhabitants of Canaan, are bread for us in Numbers 14 verse 9. They shall finish them and not spare any of them. So the shepherds of Israel shall act in, man, in a manner to devour their enemies. So they shall not act on, on the defensive only, but they shall have victory over their enemies by the power of Christ and his spirit upon them. They are well armed with God's wall armor to resist all the schemes and the wiles of the enemy. But also, they are given all the resources by the victor, Jesus Christ, of their salvation so that they triumph over the world, over Satan, over the flesh, carrying back the battle into, into Satan's own dominion, into the, into the flesh's own dominion, and into the world's own dominion. And therefore, the Bible says that we, we are to mortify the deeds of the flesh. We are to overcome the world. We are to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Clearly, he's writing and prophesying of a real issue here, a real threat to God's community. The threat of the Assyrian that would come against both kingdoms in a foreseeable future, and God does nothing without revealing to his servants the prophets. So Micah also used the idea of the Assyrian for any pagan nation or empire set against God's people 
All the enemies of God's people are in view here. But this is the point. Satan's malice cannot really hurt the church. Satan's malice shall always turn for the good of God's people. I'm telling you, if you look at the church history, whenever the church was persecuted by any kingdom, that became the time for the church's purification and growth. You remember how, uh, was it uh, you, Latma, or who was that? Who, to, who spoke to Master Lidley and said, today you will light up a torch in England that shall never be extinguished. The point, the point then is the church cannot really be overcome by any enemy. The church shall turn to have good out of any persecution. So, whereas, this, or whereas Satan hopes to waste the church, Satan shall be wasted. Whereas Satan seemed to triumph over the church, he shall be foiled. No gate of, of, the, no gate of Hades, no gate of hell shall prevail against the church of Christ because Christ has given us power. So it has been like that ever since. So that under every persecution, the church has grown. Look at what's happening in China right now. Is the communist regime triumphing over the church? No. There is such mighty growth, even numerically, of the church, even though there is no single building in China, yet there are home churches that are doing exploits for the Lord in China. Someone has written a testimony of the victory of Christ's church over the centuries, and this is what he says. I quote, The more it was pressed down, the more it rose up and flourished, shivering the assault of the pagans and strengthened more and more, not by resisting, but by enduring. Yet all by whomsoever done shall be the work of Christ alone, enduring in martyrs, teaching in pastors, converting the apostles of pagan nations to be disciples of Christ. Amen. Though the enemies of God's people would come against them, they will turn out to be God's blessings upon her. The leaders of God's church will race against the mighty men, and God often works this way to deliver us from our enemies, strengthening such men who will stand against the walls of the enemy, who will stand against the schemes of the devil under the power of his might, and having done it all to stand. Stand therefore, brethren, stand therefore under the power of God, using means to
preserve his church from all the attacks of the enemy? Yes, by raising up bold men. But men who will stand up and say, we shall obey God rather than men. Because we are assured here that he shall deliver us. So the Lord shall raise up shepherds and the Lord himself shall deliver us. We read, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and trends within our border. Not they shall deliver us, but that he, not the Assyrian, but the Lord, the Messiah, he shall deliver us. It could be that you will use the seven under-shepherds, but the seven under-shepherds shall rise up against the enemy of his people under the banner of Christ. And the chief shepherd who is also the Prince of Peace, shall triumph over every enemy. It is finally Christ, the victor and the conqueror, who shall ensure that the last enemy shall be destroyed and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Then no more shall sin molest God's children, no more tear, no more suffering, no more pain, all the effects of the curse shall be reversed. He shall deliver, whether by them or by himself, whether by the, uh, the seven under shepherds or by this mighty man, eight princes of men, the Lord himself shall deliver us. So I don't know what you might be going through right now, individually, because this applies both for the deliverance of the church which you remember, as well as for you individually. But what I can assure you from this passage is this. Do not, you can tell any enemy in your life, do not love over me, O oh my enemy. For even when I shall fall down, I shall stand up. That's what the Bible says. And we will see that as we read on. There is no enemy of God's people who shall endure forever. Because God's people have God on their side. So that it doesn't matter what enemies have in, in terms of their weapons. They cannot prevail against God. He shall deliver us. Whether by them, and, and this is, uh, please, do not despise the means that God employs for the good of your soul. Where God has given you under shepherds, make good use of them. Request them to pray for you. And we will pray for you. Request them to visit with you. Request them to come with you when you're going through those difficulties of life. Ask for counsel. Make good use of the seven under shepherds that the Lord has given for his church. They are seven. 
in the text. I didn't mean seven here at TBC, but seven in the text. Meaning, seven meaning that the church is well supplied with under shepherds to, to take care of his church. Don't go through this life as if God has not employed the means by which you overcome some of these uh, spiritual enemies. And physical enemies too. You know, I might not be a lawyer. Thankfully, we have a lawyer. Anyway, I might not be a lawyer, but I can give you counsel that from the scriptures that could help you. He shall deliver us. And we mustn't be afraid or worry of being delivered by means. The Lord does employ means. He shall deliver not us only, but also he shall deliver completely. This is what Isaac words wrote in the Christmas carol. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. He wrote, no more let sin and sorrows grow. No thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow. How far? How far? Far as the curse is found. And so he goes on to say, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nation prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. So from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Whatsoever shall be delivered shall be forever safe in our Savior's love. He shall be our deliverer and safe keep and vouchsafe and seal until the close of the age. And even in glory, he shall ca cause us to stand before the judgment seat with boldness, for he shall be our judge and our advocate. So then what can we fear? If God is for us, what can we fear? Are you a believer? Then the Lord is for you. Really, the problem is that uh, we are not in constant communion with him, and so we end up with anxiety and fear. But he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to him. Then he says, and then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, our Lord.